Welcome aboard the USS Aeronome. To become a member of our crew, please visit perfectorganism.com slash support. As a patron of Perfect Organism, you'll receive exclusive perks and early access to content. Incoming audio transmission received. Please proceed to Subdeck 3 to begin playback. Thank you, and welcome aboard. I think we ought to discuss the bonus situation. Right. Brett and right. I, we think we ought to, we deserve full shares, right, right baby? You see, Mr. Park and I feel that the bonus situation is... Move! Get out of there! Welcome to Perfect Organism, the Alien Saga podcast. I'm your host, Jay Prater, and I'm joined by hosts... Patrick Green. What up, Jamie? Nothing much, man. Uh, well, a lot, actually. I don't know why I just said that. <laughs> literally <laughs> literally nothing. It's up right now. No, I don't know. Nothing. We're just here to shit, shoot the shit. No, but <laughs> we are here to launch The Forbidden Planet, 40 Years of Alien, and it's a really great series that we're working on. We've been sort of working on it probably halfway th- into... 40 Miles of Bad Road, which is the Aliens series that we just wrapped a couple weeks ago. And that was an, a, a, just so much fun. Uh, so There's so much to talk about, our roundtables. But we really wanted to go back to the beginning and explore the film that's responsible for us, in some ways, being here as a podcast, as friends, uh, as a community, as a fan community. It's Alien is, is why we're all here. So it seemed apropos to convene and talk about this series talk about alien talk a little about a little bit about science fiction in the 70s what was kind of going on but really just uh show our appreciation and our love as co-hosts as co-owners of perfect organism and um salute ridley scott dan o'bannon 20th century fox um again this is this is a really historical time in the sense that the studio that made alien is no more they are done in the sense of who they were in in the 1970s when they were this colossal machine they've now been bought out by Disney and this is just an unprecedented time but really but it's also a time to really I don't know just kind of give back and uh, talk about this film that's really inspired all of our lives And it's, it's important to remember, like, this is not just, it's not, you know, quote unquote, just a movie. It's the foundation of some of the most pervasive tropes in contemporary film, you know, the, the, not just the sort of haunted house in space or the truckers in space or the analog, you know, cassette futurism aesthetics and things, but also like some of the great work in film production history, not just Ridley Scott and not just Dan O'Bannon or and Shuset, but even, you know, Ron Cobb and Chris Foss and Giger, obviously, you know, is an enormous presence in and you know the ways that we think about fear and the ways we think about space aesthetics now this is a i mean this 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 is a, an academy award winning film it won best visual effects in in 79 
Um, you know, it won Saturn Awards, got a Hugo Award. It has it is something won that some BAFTAs. Yes, and it's it's something that you know is is considered a, an enormous critical masterpiece and a, and a cornerstone of popular culture. And I think it's it's now far enough away. Forty years is is a long time, you know. And and I, I feel like it's it's easy to sort of forget that um, that it really was made, you know, that it was something that that didn't exist at one point and that suddenly did, and all these people came together to make this like completely new utterance. That I I mean I speaking personally would not be able to define myself the way that I define myself in the absence of, you know? I mean, Alien has been a part of my life for so long now, and I know I'm speak I'm preaching to the choir here because I know you're in the same boat, and I know most of the people listening to this are in that same boat. Alien has been so much a part of my life for so long that I, I don't I don't know where um you know where it stops for me. You know, in, in terms I think I said this about aliens too, but it's it's true. It's like these movies are so fundamentally deeply a part of our consciousness and our and our self identity that it's hard to tell like where they stop and where 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 we begin. And um there are very few things like that for me and Alien is one of them. I feel like uh it is a movie that has shaped um big parts of my you know aesthetic perception of the universe. I mean, I, I think Jerry Goldsmith's score was a huge influence on my going into composition professionally. That was a, a big part of my journey personally in that regard as well. You know, I think um, <clears throat> I think a lot of people fall in love with science fiction when they're kids, and I think a lot of us you know gravitate towards things like Star Wars, obviously, and Star Trek, and a lot of the the big kind of juggernaut franchises. But some of us also fall in love with Alien, and I think that that moment where you realize, like, this speaks to me in a really powerful way, I think that's like an early self-identity moment that a lot of us go through, and um, and I'm just, I'm excited to have a moment to, to look back on this thing that, um, you know, predated my birth by six years, you know, and, and to look at it like it's new and fresh again, and to take this anniversary as a chance to, uh, to re-identify myself and this film, you know, in relation to me. Yeah, uh, I'm with you there. And I, I, as I think about uh, Alien, I think about really more than, you know, I think as we, as the films kind of released, you know, Aliens and then Alien 3 and then Alien Resurrection, we tend to think about different things and relationships to those films. Um, but when I think about Alien, I think about certain character moments. I think about um, maybe uh, uh, quotes from that Ripley said uh, or the tension between Ripley and Parker. Um these characters continue to live and breathe inside of my consciousness in a way that no other film does. I mean, certainly in a way that aliens does, but alien was the beginning of that was the beginning of these really bold and rich characters, but yet really human and ordinary, just like you and me, who people who go to jobs and, and, uh, you know, maybe they're not always happy in those jobs, but they kind of have to pay the bills and they got to do what they have to do. Um, Alien made kind of the ordinary man special. Alien helped craft or to create the idea that the blue collar man is important um, because they were they were deemed as not important. And those blue collar people, the Ellen Ripley's, the Lambert's, the Parker's, the Bretts, the Dallas um, or the Dallas's maybe um, they I don't know. It just it was like this flower that opened and it it, it, it just for me. Um, made me feel like I was one of them. And not a lot of science fiction films do that or have that, that entry, that entryway into, um, feeling like you're on this ship with these people. Because a lot of science fiction is really kind of, 
high concept and it's really futuristic and it's kind of not realistic at the same time. So you can kind of escape to it. It just feels kind of like crazy, like crazy science fiction, whereas alien made it real alien made it possible. And, uh, I, I can't uh, go on enough about how much that film lives in me. And Alien also, I think what it did that's important to, to remember, and I know we're going to talk a little bit about sort of the arc of science fiction history in this episode, but it took a lot of the tropes that were already sort of powerful on their own, and but they were kind of stuck in movies that weren't quite as serious as the ideas were, and it put them together into something that felt very solid. So, for example, you know, we talk a lot about the parallels with Planet of the Vampires, or Forbidden Planet, obviously, which is what this this um, series is about, or even Dark Star, which was um, O'Bannon's previous film with John Carpenter. Like those were movies that all had great elements in them, but they were um, you know hampered by sort of an unevenness of tone, or by the fact that you know um, science fiction before the seventies really was. Or I guess Dark Star was in the seventies technically, but it, it felt more like an earlier sci-fi film. You know, sci-fi in the seventies was really still firmly rooted in this idea of pulp fiction. You know. 40G gravity atmosphere, strange thing happens to man's body and mind. It was something that was very genre. It was very, you know, uh, catering towards people who followed, you know, this this sort of specific countercultural um, tract and and like not for general audiences. It, it didn't sort of aspire to be something more universal than that. And of course, we saw that change um, in the 70s, and we saw things like uh, 2001 A Space Odyssey start breaking through and treating sci-fi more as like a very serious high-concept film genre, not just having writers like Asimov in literature treating it like it's a high-concept, uh, you know, literature literature um, genre as well. Um, and I feel like what was cool with Alien is that it took a lot of these, these high-concept ideas and it put them in a vehicle that was also propulsive enough from an audience standpoint to work really well as something that you would go and see and you would talk about and you would, you know, go to the proverbial water cooler at work the next day and you'd go, holy shit, you know, my friend fainted in this movie. You have to go see it. Like, you're not going to believe what happens in this film. It's so crazy and so scary. And all of a sudden, science fiction became something that was at once, you know, popcorn entertainment and also so devastatingly real that it was it was actually too frightening for many people. And I think that that um, tightrope walk is something that a lot of films try to get. You know, a lot of things try to be both popular entertainment and, and high art and fail really miserably at it. And I think Alien, maybe more than any other film I can think of in history, nails that you know it, it is something that is so entertaining and something that you want to talk about and you want to share with people and you want to get tattoos of and you want to identify yourself with it but it's also something that's very personal and very um subjective and very terrifying and something that gives you um you know really elemental fear and i think it's uh it's just amazing how how they were able to pull that off As you were talking, I, I keep thinking about Giger and his contribution, which I wouldn't even say it's a contribution. I mean, Giger and his work, uh, the alien that he created, um, helped define a genre post-alien. Um, you were hard-pressed as a filmmaker, maybe even as a science fiction filmmaker, to, to make a monster film because nothing was going to compare. The, the creature that he crafted was so extraordinary and at the same time 
almost violently sexual. Um, the things that were happening, the being, you know, the face hugger, the, you know, it had something down uh, Kane's throat, like all of these things like that we, you know, we, when you like see a spider or a snake and you kind of shudder and you, because you're shuddering with the idea that what if this thing is crawling on me, whereas Alien made it real. Giger's creations came to life and it did what we've always been terrified of, of sort of like things like that doing. Um, whether it's like the kind of like face rape or male rape, um, you know, all of those conversations that have been had in the context of what Alien established and our fears, our darkest fears, you know, even it makes me think about um, the scene with Lambert and the alien approaching her um, and it's got its head down, but you can kind of see its mouth, almost like it's smiling at her as it approaches her and she's looking at it like, what is going on? I don't know what. It's about to go on and neither does the audience. And it's fucking terrifying that scene every single time when you see Lambert um, throwing out, uh, I think it's oxygen tanks. Right. And you see that, that circular white, like light glowing and incredible, that, that incredible spotlight. I know yeah, like, those design that shadow, decisions like that are that so shadow that sort of like rolls over and then yeah. it unfolds like a flower. I mean, it just and it looks me almost chills. like it looks almost like there's like a dolly zoom because it's like the shadow is kind of growing larger and also more diffuse. Yes, and it kind of, yeah. It like the 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 camera. I mean, this is fucking. I mean, it's it's also it's it's Ridley Scott proving definitively for all time that he's an absolute cinematic genius with this one film. If this were the only thing that Ridley Scott ever did, he would have. 100% cemented his place in in the pantheon of film history. And this was this was one of his first features and he wasn't even young. Like he was already established but he just his he was career 40. wasn't taking up. Yeah, he was 40 years old. Um not to say that's not young, but I mean but for for a first big breakout hit for a director, like that is not, you know, he wasn't a spring chicken. Um no. and it was it was just a complete you know, it was just fate that he got this project and that Star Wars was successful and alien and Fox greenlit um, alien and, you know, based on O'Bannon's script, partially, partly because it was going to be cheap to shoot. And it was something that was kind of like in the, in the zeitgeist. And so they decided to go with it. And then Scott, who had done the duelists, of course, you know, and that was like the only thing he was known for other than commercials and music videos, um, ended up being this visual genius, like a savant basically, who incorporated all of the things that were developed. You know, I mean, we, we also haven't even talked about, I'm sure we probably will get more into this at some point, but how um, Hodorowski's failed Dune project was like, was, was basically the, 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 the progenitor of what would become the Alien project. And it's like, it's not accidental that Mobius, Jean Giraud, was, you know, one of the artists for, was one of the primary artists for Dune, and that he, he was one of the primary visual influences on Ridley Scott and the Ridley Grams that went on to form the production basis for Alien are totally aesthetically linked with the work of Mobius. It's like the cross currents of history and design and genius in this one movie are unbelievable. And what's so cool is that so many of these things weren't proven. I mean, H.R. Giger, of course, another dude who came off of the failed Hodorowsky project, was just this sort of, you know, offbeat, left of center, um, you know, surrealist artist who was 
you know, kind of semi-successful in the art world, but was not thought of as like a serious Hollywood. He was had nothing to do with the film industry, you know, and he was brought into it by Hodorowsky being crazy and wanting to go with these like huge ideas. And then all of a sudden he came onto Dan O'Bannon's radar because of that. Because O'Bannon, of course, was also part of the, the Dune project. And then O'Bannon, you know, thought, well, my first monster from Dark Star looked ridiculous. You know, why don't we have somebody come up with something new? And he saw Giger's artwork, and that was that was it. And Ridley, of course, took an immediate shine to it. And it was just like, you, you couldn't have made a, a better arrangement of freak accidents if you had tried. The amount of things that had to go right to make this movie happen, and that somehow went better than right, that somehow went miraculously, um, it's just crazy. And to add to that, the struggle, you know, in terms of when Giger was brought in, a lot of people were like, oh, no, this is far too out there, far too sexual. It's a deviant. Because it was, right? I mean, there's there's nothing like that. There's nothing like that. Yeah, there was nothing like that. And there continues to be nothing like that. The only thing that even that is a, a, a shade of of that kind of work was, again, Giger's work on the first um What's that film about the female alien? A species? Species, yeah. yeah. You know, that was a film where he was able to kind of bring to life one of his designs, again, which was also very creepy and strange, but nothing like uh, what he was going through as an artist. Um, again, there was a lot of pushback. And then, you know, obviously we know that Dan O'Bannon was like, yes, this has to be it. And then Ridley was like, yes, this is it. Yes, this is it. And Fox was like, we don't know. We don't think so. And Ridley Scott was like, Oh, no, hell yes. This is what we have to do. And it was because of those men pushing Giger um, and pushing his aesthetic and, and realizing that nothing is going to succeed unless we do this. No one is going to believe this unless we use this, these monsters and these designs. And they were right. And it's created, a, you know, it's created a, a legacy of a, a creature that is unlike any other. And even to this day, and we've talked about this before. I see iterations of Giger's alien that scare the shit out of me. In fact, isn't that amazing? Um, it is. In fact, um, Dane Hallett uh, for the 40th anniversary, people head on over to his page. If anyone doesn't know by now who Dane Hallett is, he was a essentially a, a conceptual designer to some degree. Actually, I don't think that that's the right term, but he was a, an artist on alien covenant. He's been releasing some, um, one of a kind, Posters. 300 megabyte poster yeah. files they're fucking amazing yeah and they're huge because you can do whatever you want with them you can send them to the printer and get like 36 by 24 posters printed up which is what i'm gonna do um but even his iterations of the creature are fucking terrifying his his version of the face hugger which we've seen over and over and over that image is like the idea that that thing can have its fingers around your face and it's it's tails around your throat squeezing you forcing you to accept this thing like it's it's horrible and it's beautiful and it's terrifying and it continues to be i am still terrified of this creature um and of course i've seen it in in ways where it's, it's been comical and you know like our friend clara at the utani the studio utani studio she's dressed it up in dresses and taken kind of funny photos but it still doesn't lose its 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 terror you can then see it dressed in dark and by some some like young conceptual designer who's kind of working on deviant art or art space or wherever, and they release an image of uh, of the alien, and we're like, oh shit, that's a, that's frightening. What other creature? What other creature do we have that is that um, potent still? I don't know. Nothing. Nothing at all. Yeah. Other other yeah. than other than maybe 
the, the you know the, the the thing from uh, 1982 from the Carpenter film. That, that's that's the yeah. only one that to me I think is consistently still frightening. But the the difference, of course, is that you know that creature can look like anything. The xenomorph looks like the xenomorph. Like that is a form factor that, for various reasons, is so. I mean, that's that's why I love Alien because when I was a kid, I fell in love with those action figures and they looked like that, and I just could not get them out of my head. You know, it it just touches on something very deep within us. And um, I mean, I, I would say I, I think that, you know, there's King Kong, there's Godzilla and there's the Xenomorph. And I think everything else, including, you know, the great Universal Studios monsters of the early you know 20th century film industry, I, I think pale in comparison. I don't think that there is anything, you know, because everything else, here's the thing, everything else clearly um, broadcasts its motives. So this is something that you've talked about very eloquently before. Um, and, and I think you're absolutely right. You know, so when you see the Wolfman, when you see the creature from the Black Lagoon, when you see Dracula... You, it's, there's no question about what they want to do, right? They want to fuck you or they want to kill you, right? Or they want to feed off of your life force. When you see King Kong, um, it's more ambiguous because he's afraid, right? And I think that's part of why he's more powerful. When you see Godzilla, it's more ambiguous because with a very slight plot shift, he can be either a hero or the ultimate villain, depending on which generation of Godzilla film you're talking about. When you see a xenomorph, you don't even have that. When you see Xenomorph, you are lacking the the things that we need as humans to judge other humans by. But there's enough there to give off such a humanoid aspect that, you know, we look for those things, right? Like our our facial recognition software is desperately looking for a cue on like what, what I'm looking at. Like why does this, you know, it has a jaw, it has humanoid teeth, it's standing bipedally. Like this, this feels like a human, but it's, it's something's wrong. Like something is not, I, it's not, I don't, I can't see its eyes. I it can't talk to me. It looks like a, like a person and also like the ultimate horror that a person could become. It's gaunt, but yet it's like infinitely strong. It's sexual and brutal, and yet it's graceful like a ballerina. It is such a, an incredible amount of contradiction that I, I think it's just, I, I, could, I could not imagine any creature being better for film than the xenomorph because it was such a powerful idea as a design that it basically defined an entire industry of sci-fi horror. And you see films today that come out like Life, which is a, a great movie. Um, you know, and it very clearly uses the alien template in a lot of ways. And like the, the monster design of that, it's like, who fucking cares about it? You know? Oh, it's shit. Or it's something, horrible. even something like, you know, Cloverfield, like, like that's like a movie that's so interesting as a sci-fi idea. And then you watch the movie and you see the monster and you're like, oh, what the fuck? What is this meatball shit? Yeah. You know? There's, yeah. There's nothing scary about that. I mean, almost, monster. almost any single film, including you saw like O'Bannon's original sketches for like the, the, his idea for the alien in the movie, like any other alien in a film looks completely ridiculous next to a xenomorph, including the Predator. Although, I think it's yep. interesting that, that the Predators, for some reason, the Yautja, that they do sort of, like, work, I think, as an idea. Like, there's something about them that I think it works, even though it's not horrifying, but it, it, it just works for me. But the xenomorph is so different from that. The xenomorph is something that, like, it makes every other idea look fucking terrible compared to it, you know? Yeah, and uh, it's that question, what does it want? We don't know what it wants. We still don't know what it wants. In fact, um, I think about Alien 3. I mean, of course, this is an Alien episode, part of our Alien series. But that question of what does it want, when you see that thing coming up next to Ripley in Alien 3 in that iconic shot, what are we all thinking? What the fuck does it want from her? We don't know. We didn't know. Um, And the only thing we found out is that, okay, it's carrying a queen. Ripley's carrying a queen. 
So it's it, it doesn't really want anything from her right now. Um, and much like uh, I think about if I think about something that really scares me, it would be like if I looked outside my window and maybe there's some undescript, nondescript person staring and staring back at me. But what question do we ask? What are they doing? What does it want? Um, and I think the only other creature really, really, that's actually a real creature that is as terrifying as the alien is a great white shark. Um, sort of traveling beneath our feet. Where is it? We don't know where it is. They actually, the, 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 the jaws and alien have a lot in common. Um, where oh, certainly, yeah. Uh, there were, it's this monster. Um, even though if you look at a shark, we've all seen sharks. Um, th- it still has this terror trigger for us, even though we've known what they've looked like for a long time. And the xenomorph has a terror trigger for us, even though we know it's not real, but, there's something about it that seems like it could be real. Um, like it's almost a representation of our, the, the depths of our disfiguration as people, the depths of what we could go to. And the only thing more scary than the xenomorph and alien was Ash, um, because he was enabling it. Yeah. We haven't even talked about Ash yet. That's right. I mean, that, that, that's another enormous, um, there were two aliens on that ship, right? And and there was also you know the the fact that there was this company behind it I mean the fact that it actually ended up being a, a pretty interesting sort of socio political commentary for late nineteen seventies film I think is also sort of it's it's sort of been lost because it's sort of you know we've gotten away from the context in which it was released but you know at, at the time that was pretty groundbreaking stuff to be couching this pretty pretty high concept um, commentary on you know, uh, the, the dictates of capitalism and on how removed corporations were from people, um, and to be putting in, into this, this sci-fi picture, you know, I think it's, it's easy to, it's easy to sort of, to, to think of it as jaws in space, because that's how everybody always frames it. But, but there really was a lot more going on than that. And I think that the fact that the jaws in space aspect of it worked so unbelievably well is probably part of that because we all get distracted by how scary it is and how thrilling it is. But it's also just as a piece of art, I think a very timeless poetic allegory for um, how easy it is to inadvertently fuck each other over because we don't see the humanity in each other anymore. Yeah. Because we look at ourselves as balance numbers on a spreadsheet and we and you know we make decisions affecting people who are thousands of light years away from us, um, who are you know people we will never interact with. And we, I'm talking, you know, obviously metaphorically here because I don't, <laughs> I don't make decisions about people thousands of light years away. But you know what I'm saying? It's easy to, when you when we hear about things happening, for example, right now in Yemen, it's very easy to look at that situation and to think, well, there's nothing I can really do about it. This is not my life. I feel terrible about it, but I can't, I can't really get involved. And we kind of justify it to ourselves like that, you know. And an alien. The company is nefariously doing that. The company is actually, you know, of course, making the decision to send them to that beacon, which is, of course, a forbidden planet trope, right? Um, and uh, and they're doing it through this vehicle of this this quasi-human. Again, you know, Ash, just like the Xenomorph, is so close to being human that our brains try to think of him as a human. And in trying to think of him as human, we start questioning why why we are different from him in the first place. Like we start, like, you know, we talk about this on Shoulder of Orion quite a bit. Um, you know, having a replicant to compare yourself to gives you a lot of room to think, who am I actually as what I define as a human, as a person? And, uh, and I think part of why Ash sticks in consciousness so effectively is because on the outside, he looks like so many people that we know who are just a little quirky, you know, might be on, might be on the spectrum a little bit that, you know, they're just, he just comes across like just sort of like a, an, you know, slightly eccentric scientist. 
who's actually so much more than that. And in being so much more than that becomes totemic to a much larger issue, which is this idea of, uh, of, of capitalism that eats itself. It's your special order. You read it. I thought it was clear. What was it? Bring back life form. Priority one. All other priorities rescinded. As I think about alien and really kind of process, uh, allegorically what fear does with people, how fear shapes people. Um, and we see it after the death of Dallas, this fear of this creature is, is, uh, it's almost like a disease spreading, uh, you know, from, you know, Parker to Lambert. And they, then they start infighting. They start yelling at each other and fighting when in fact they should be uniting. And it's interesting uh, that what the human response is to fear, um, as we all know, there's so much, there's so much going on in our world. There's so much out there to divide us, and uh, a lot of what's dividing us is the idea of fear or this idea of of something we're we're not aware of or something we don't understand, terrifying us. And what do we do? Um, do we unite or we do we divide? And right now, a lot of people have just been dividing over it. And then there's this machine um, behind all of it saying, "Yes, divide." become divided because we can you know that's we can do more if a nation is divided you know we we always know this but i you know and i think that was sort of ash's um mentality on on the nostromo he was sort of there insidiously dividing everyone um not really helping them not really working and then much like when ripley meets the alien you know sort of when she's you know headed towards the narcissist um the narcissist <laughs> the narcissist the narcissist um she kind of turns around and goes she doesn't really know and then of course the alien looks at the cat um but much like that scene ripley doesn't know what ash's intentions are and ash becomes terrifying um and there was yes, no malfunction right. just, just like just like a shark right you're mentioning yeah. like why the great white is such a a, a moving symbol of fear for us. It's because just like Quint says in Jaws, you know, it has dead eyes. It has doll's eyes, right? And it's, it's, yeah. it's, and, and that's exactly what Ash has during that famous scene where everything turns around. And I think one of the great sequences in all of horror films ever. Um, and, and all of a sudden his face is completely slack, you know, like so many, I didn't mean to cut you off. I'll, I'll let you get right back on that in one second, but I just want to jump on this quick. Like in so many other films and so many other lesser films, when a character has a, f a flip like that to become evil, quote unquote, although Ash, of course, isn't evil. He's programmed to do what he's doing. It's not like it's some sort of, you know, he doesn't have volition in this, but he's nonetheless, he's acting, you know, quote unquote evilly, you know, a character in, in a lesser film would look malevolent. He would look angry. He would arch his eyebrows and lean forward like a predator and be, try to be frightening. And what's amazing is that, you know, Ian Holm and, and the character decide to, um, he decides to, I'm talking about like two different people. Ian Holm decides to actually kind of straighten up and go completely slack and to act almost like there is, almost like he's sleepwalking. You know, and again, it's exactly what you were saying before. It's a removal of clarity of intent. And I think when you remove clarity of intent, you introduce subjectivity to a film. Just like Annihilation, we talk about all the time as being such a great film. Part of why it's a great film is because it's increasingly unclear why people are doing what they're doing. You just know that they're, you know, that they're doing it, that they're pushing onward, that they're dissolving, that they're choosing to make clearly dangerous decisions, you know? Um, and that's what happens in tragedy is you start losing sight of the humanity in the people around you and in yourself. Sorry, I cut you off. Go ahead. 
No, that's I, I completely agree. I mean, I, as I think about Ash, you know, and I think this conversation about Ash kind of becoming a a version of the alien on the ship, it's not. It doesn't just become the eighth passenger. Ash becomes the seventh passenger. Ash is sort of in cahoots with this thing. He's obsessed with it. He's uh, there's some type of maybe it's not a glitch. Maybe it's just programming. We don't really know. Um, but Ash, who's this person that we've been seeing throughout the whole film, and we know what he looks like, and he has this a little bit of warmth to him, certainly a distance, but there's a little bit of warmth there. Then he becomes this this terrifying thing, you know? And I, I think about Ash in terms of, like, it's like kind of one of those old, or uh, uh, maybe a horror film or a psychological horror film where someone's driving in the woods or they're walking in the woods, and all of a sudden they see someone in the woods staring back at them. We know what humans look like. We're, you know, we know what, you know, we we're... This is a, a world full of human people, but yet they, a human can become scary when they're off in the distance staring at you and you're like, holy shit, is my life in danger? And then Ash, Ash becomes that kind of uh, gawker, that voyeuristic person in the woods just kind of sitting there waiting, watching, and we don't know, what do you want, buddy? What are you doing? Why are you here? Why are you here? And then you get more afraid and more afraid. And that's kind of the relationship that Ash started having with Ripley. You know, all of a sudden he turns up in the room and the, the, the mother room, I would say, and he's right next to her. And we don't know how he got there. We didn't hear him come in, but he's right there. And oh, at that a moment, brilliant moment, it is. And he is as dangerous as the alien. Um, at least the alien hides itself. Ash isn't even hiding himself. He's like, you're fucked. And, uh, you know, you're, and I, I, you know, there's a little bit of I, a question I have, like when she's kind of trying to rough him up in the way Ripley tends to do in, in the films where she kind of throws him against the wall and then all of a sudden he's bleeding, he's bleeding the white blood. I don't know if there was a, the glitch happened there or if he was just kind of always like that, or maybe it was Waylon Yutani said, okay, um, he reads, you know, he reads the message from Waylon Yutani and that kind of clicks him over into this is your mission now. Um, but Ash is just wholly terrifying, um, in, in a way that, uh, I don't think we've seen yet or since. Yeah. And, and I think part of it is because he is this cipher for the company because you're right. Like there, again, that's another layer of, of ambivalence or of ambiguity. It's sort of unclear why he's devolving that quickly. You know, like obviously now that Ripley's aware of special order 937, like something has accelerated within him and he's becoming murderous, but like, but so he must've been programmed by somebody along the line to react with like murderous intent. If somebody were to discover the true nature of the journey and why they went to get the beacon and about all other, all other, um, you know, priorities being rescinded and things like that. But, but you see these things and it just sort of, it makes you think about the whole chain of malevolence that led to that moment, you know, that they willfully set these people out there to be, horribly impregnated and to come back just for the sake of getting a fucking a new toy to play with in the bio research you know i mean and we, we talked about how aliens is a much different movie once you realize that gorman was planted there to let to basically to, to force this to fail you know that like that it really was never a rescue mission you know but the first time you're watching the movie you don't know that so it's this constant sense of sort of unraveling these layers of malevolence as i said an alien which set the template for aliens obviously it's the same thing. It's it's this sort of this constant unwinding of evil intent of wondering like who who are the people who would allow this to happen and not only allow it to happen who would actually force it to happen and what does that say about their priorities because you know that in the paradigm in which you know Wayland Yutani operates that they would get a, that they would get away with it in a heartbeat. 
Yeah, um, I mean, Wayland Yutani. There's, you know, again, there's the, there's the third presence on the ship. What do they want? I mean, we know sort of what they want, but all of the all of the the information is coming from this computer screen, this sort of nondescript computer screen to this little tiny ship in the vastness of space. I mean, it's a big ship, but in the context of space, the Nostromo is nothing. Um, the 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 thing that they're pulling. What is that thing they're pulling again? The oil rig. The oil rig, yeah, it's nothing. It's just it's minuscule. It's a raindrop. It's less than a raindrop. In or the, it's a it's a I think it's a ref, it's an ore refinery. A refinery, yeah, a refinery, yeah. 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 Um, you know, I, it's it sets up um, the idea of you know, who, or or the question of who is the alien here. Now, certainly, there's the life cycle of the alien and what does it want, but m- much of what it's doing is just reacting to its own sort of chain of events. The egg opened, the face hugger came on, it impregnated. That's just what it does. That's what animals do. The humans have far more insidious ideas or intentions. And that becomes, again, then there's another presence on the ship. So you just don't have Ash and the alien. You also have um, the company that's informing Ash. Like, so it's like, and I mean, you even hear it in Ripley and she's, she's just kind of like, what do they want? What do they want? Maybe they want it for their bioweapons division. I mean, at, at that point, it's like it's almost like we're fucked. This is it. It's it's you know we got to abandon this ship and and that'll be that. It's it just it it turns from this kind of this small story to this oh there's something on this ship that is dangerous to us and it's frightening to us to oh but there's something else on this ship that's also dangerous to us and he's been here the whole time to there's something else that's been following us and has been um, guiding us and paying us that's also on this ship um and our lives are in danger so there's so many layers happening I kind of want to pivot back to one thing that's kind of away a little bit from this conversation. But the reason why that I came up and we discussed the the topic of the Forbidden Planet, and one of the reasons why I love Alien so much, um, it's my next favorite after Alien 3, um, but I would say aesthetically I love Alien the most, um, is the idea of exploration, scientific exploration. Well, it's not really scientific, but just exploration of a foreign planet. And uh, the, the the cerebral quality in which that happens and that unfolds and the way that they, the miniatures that they created and the soundscapes that they created and the wind blowing and, you know, all of the, the debris in, in the air or whatever that, whatever the air is. Um, and I've never seen a film like it since. And uh, it's, it continues to boggle my mind and, uh, kind of continued it continues to cast a spell over me and and in conjunction with the music jerry goldsmith's score reminds me of kind of being in the nautilus it reminds me of being at sea um and i've said that a lot there's just something about that score and that planet when they're walking and you hear that that sound that where it's like
and then it kind of drifts off and you hear almost like chains rattling. Um, and this is the, 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 the planet that they're walking on. And, and of course, eventually they get to the derelict and then they eventually get to the, the space jockey room and all of it is done in almost silence. There's a few bits of dialogue here and there, but it is the, one of the most brilliant sequences in a science fiction film I have ever seen in my life. Oh, hundred percent. And I am dying. I am dying for alien to get back to those roots of exploration to, to feature explorers um, in, in a quiet, it doesn't mean, doesn't even might not have to be the kind of desolation we see on LV four two six. It could be a different type of desolation on another planet. But the idea of exploring a an unknown planet. Well, I, no, I mean, I would argue that the prequels are largely based around that idea. They, they might not pull it off as well, but I, I think Prometheus and Covenant both feature pretty extended exploration sequences. Yeah, but not like that. Not the kind of exploration that lets that exploration breathe. For instance, you have hiked. A lot. I have. I've hiked up volcanoes. Um, I've I've done a lot of kind of outdoor travel, um, and I've done it with people. In fact, actually, I've done a lot of hiking with Dan um, in the past year or so since we've known. Dan is our uh, co-partner on Shoulder of Orion, our Blade Runner podcast. Um, but when we're hiking and we're we're exploring, even though you know it's Earth and everyone's been there, what's not happening is a lot of talking. We're breathing. Um, we're, we're going up the mountain or the hill or, or, right. or through the woods. Um, whereas in Prometheus and Covenant, none of that happens. It's just talk, 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 talk. Mm. Mm. Alien, alien is expert at it because it's foreboding. There's this element of fear. What are we about to find? Um, and it's probably 30 minutes or more. Maybe no, it's probably not 30 minutes. It's probably a good 15, 20 minutes of silent exploration. And, uh, I, that brings me back to alien. Every time I will watch alien every, like every week to explore that, that planet with those people, um, to see those small lights from their, uh, space suits as they kind of journey into the, the landscape. I mean, Oh, it's like visual. It's like visual. How do I explain it? It's like visual poetry. Um, and I, I imagine, I even imagine um, people who discovered America or discovered uh, Greenland or Iceland um, and they bring up their ship and they, and they get out of their ship and they walk on this land that no one's ever been on before, where even like Amerigo Vespucci or, or other explorers. And it, a lot of that was done in silence. A lot of that was done with no other people around, obviously. And, Alien just, it is, it is, it's a whole different film. It, it, it's, it's a wider, it's a wider palette. The films later on really get smaller lens. Like that's really the story about a, a woman or a character named Ripley. But the first film is a, is a story about exploration and, uh, the fear of exploration and what, what you might find and what you might bring back with you. And, uh, I, I, I'm dying to see. I don't I don't even know of any other science fiction films that have really explored another planet before like that. And then I'm not saying like that, like, OK, we're re, re, we're recreating alien, but exploring a planet in a way that we that we feel like as viewers, we're exploring it with you. And holy shit, this is awesome. The only thing that I could even that even comes close to it for me is interstellar. Um, and they're and they're out on yeah, that but ship. but but even in Interstellar though, they're always commenting on the realities of that planet about like the time dilation and about like the you know the gravity and, and all these things. Like the, yeah, that's what's, true. What's fascinating with Alien is that it's essentially silent, except for occasional sort of non-committal comments that come through the PA 
you know, in the space in the pressure suits, and then it's sort of silent again, you know? And, yeah. and hearing you talk, I'm, I'm thinking, it's funny, one of the few things that I think comes close to that for me is actually the the first season of The Terror, which is just fucking amazing on oh, AMC. Oh, fuck yes. Which was produced by Ridley Scott, and to yes, me feels yes. a lot like Alien. Yes, Where amen. you're sort of constantly like, what am I fucking looking at? Like, it is it is just it, the, the sense of of desolation and amazement. It's interesting because, you know, we're talking a lot about how Alien is sort of a, based on this template of exploration, but it's it's sort of like, you know, it's not like what we think of when we think about, like, science fiction from somebody like Robert Heinlein or um, or Asimov or Arthur C. Clarke, these these guys who wrote this, the sort of, um, you know, science is a frontier to be explored, you know, this idea that we can conquer worlds and that we can, you know, it, it, very Star Trek, you know, where we kind of like we can set up shop on a new planet and we can thrive, you know, we can have like trade with them. And, you know, it is not that it is we are shipwrecked in a hostile environment that is so otherworldly and so beautiful and just so abjectly terrifying that we don't yet have a context to talk about it or to understand it. The first time that you see the derelict, which I've mentioned before is my favorite moment in the entire saga, to me, and, and especially considering the fact that it's just a fucking matte painting, like the fact that, that that moment to me still feels so real and so believable and still so incomprehensible, even though we've seen you know, every production photograph you can imagine, every behind-the-scenes book, every documentary feature, everything you could ever want to, like, learn about this film, you know, you and I have learned over the decades that we've been into it. I still feel completely wrapped up in that. Every time that sequence starts, I think, oh, my God, this is really happening. I th- and it's and it's those little touches yeah. of verisimilitude. It's like, you know, the plumes of, of steam coming out of the pressure suits. It's those lights on the horizon. It's the the detritus flowing horizontally along the surface of the planet, of the moon. Um, It is the incomprehensibility of the form factor of the derelict, how it doesn't look right. It doesn't look like anything. And yet it looks like something that some other species somehow would have arrived at as an engineering solution. You know, even when they enter it through those portholes that don't even look like doors, they look like vaginas. (laughs) it, it It could be anything, you know? And because it could be anything, again, just like we were talking about both with Ash and with the Xenomorph, because it could be anything, it's also everything. And the reality is, is that if you create something that is an evocative um, exploration of everything, it will frighten you because everybody's afraid of something. And, and something is encompassed in everything. So it speaks to something deep within us because it's not telling us, oh, this is wheat, you know? And as, as, much, as, I lo- as much as I love Covenant, I completely agree with you that that idea of doomed exploration although i think it gets there is sort of lost in the beginning you know as they sort of they they they're very talky it's very bright they're walking around they see the derelict you know they they comment on it they talk about like how it could have possibly gotten there in in alien that whole sequence is basically played out but with complete mystery around it and i think that's why it will age so well you know forever even though it's been 40 years it still feels new because it feels like it could be it could be anything. It could be any of us. We could be there with them. You know? We also haven't even talked about the fact that John Hurt was not even attached to the to the project for a while. You know, because he was off filming something else and then that fell through. And and to me, I, I couldn't even imagine that movie, you know, not being made with him in that role as the first doomed explorer, you know, as the first guy that got off the boat and ended up, you know, a colonist at Roanoke. You know, I, I couldn't I couldn't imagine anybody else in that part. Um and yet we almost had it. Um, something else that I want to bring up briefly too is that, you know, just talking briefly back, you know, to the sort of the antagonist of, of the xenomorph, 
um, a film that came out a year earlier than this, and that I think is also inextricably tied with Alien, although we don't really talk about it in that context a lot, is Halloween. You know, it came out in 78, and it similarly, it features um, an antagonist that makes less sense the more attention you give to him, you know, because uh, he comes across like he's supernatural in, a, in an environment where it's supernaturalism doesn't appear to be, you know, affecting anybody, anybody else. You can't read his expression. You can't see his face. You can't tell what he's thinking. He moves very slowly. He moves very gracefully. Um, he sets off a lot of these weird, I'm talking about Michael Myers, obviously the shape, you know, he sets off a lot of these kind of weird primal things within us that come out of us being unclear about, you know, for example, that scene where Lori is, you know, um, in her room and she looks out the window and he's standing out by the laundry sheets. Like to me, that scene is so fucking scary and he's not doing anything menacing. He's just standing there looking at her, but you can't read anything about what he's doing. And I think, you know, I mean, John Carpenter and Daniel Bannon obviously were very close because they had just done Dark Star together. They were, you know, uh, USC people. They were in the same circles of friends. And I feel like there's an interesting cross current going on there. And then again, of course, you know, Carpenter goes on just three years later to do The Thing, which is a movie that is always talked about in relation with Alien. And I think it's, um, it's just interesting, this, the sort of nexus of influence that was going on in science fiction at this time. It, it produced some like truly amazing freak accidents that um i, I kind of feel like we're always trying to get back to and we kind of can't yeah and you know to, on, on that subject i, I do want to move to well not move to but i do want to mention a couple of a couple of uh notable recent science fiction films that really evoke um that sense of mystery terrifying mystery and wonder um and I'll, I'll go back to interstellar really quick and then i'll go back to kind of talk about what you just said but um in Interstellar, yes, there's a lot of talkiness. There's some commentary, but there's also a lot of scenes of that ship hovering close to the the black hole and that beautiful score by Hans Zimmer, um, one of the best scores he's ever done. Um, and it's just we're out in the sea of stars kind of wondering, is this hole going to – is this black hole going to tear us up? Is it going to kill us or is it going to give us life? Um, and it's 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 – being in space with those characters in Interstellar is terrifying. And then you have another scene in um, Annihilation when Natalie Portman's character is at the lighthouse. Spoiler warning, got to talk about it, sorry. And she's uh, up close with whatever entity has crash-landed on Earth. She's looking into this fear, this this thing. I don't know. We don't know what it is. She doesn't know what it is. But it's like uh, it's almost like a, a spell is being conjured over her, and it's beautiful and it's terrifying. And she's just seen her sort of friend slash acquaintance be transformed into this kind of being of light um, after losing her sight. Um, and it's just this moment of no talking. And, you know, that whole sequence in the lighthouse is just essentially exploration, um, where in the beginning, Natalie Portman's character is exploring this alien entity, and then it ex it's exploring her. It then turns the tables on her, and she becomes the one it stares at um, as it starts to kind of take over. And it reminds me of Alien. It reminds me of, of them being in that derelict, of them sort of thinking, what are we looking at? What is this? What is this going to, what does it mean for us? What is going to happen? Um, 
And notice get, as it's looking back at her, it, there's no features to go on. It's the same thing as a xenomorph. Like there, it, this, this, this sphere of light has no eyes. It doesn't have clear intent. And even after it sort of materializes into that, um, into the, the sort of mimic alien, it still it doesn't make sense what it's doing. You know, it, there's so much room for us to sort of, I mean, it's the same, same way how like, you know, Dallas isn't killed, right? Like it, we, we have no fucking idea what the xenomorph is there to do because it apparently has no problem, you know, killing people, but sometimes it doesn't. And at that point, we don't know there's a hive. We don't know about the, you know, the, the fact that there's a, a greater sort of social paradigm that this thing functions in. We just know that it's a movie monster that doesn't have eyes and we can't tell what it's thinking. And it's also not even killing everybody. Some people are still alive. And I feel like that, to me, is just like annihilation. It's that same, you're approaching something incomprehensible and the closer you get to it, the less sense it makes until you lose sight of, 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 what it even means to make sense in the first place. They both sort of dissolve into chaos. I think it's so beautiful. Yeah, yeah. Um, to skip back to what you're talking about in terms of like films out during the same decade or within years of Alien, and I think about, you know, there's there's a lot of films, whether it's Planet of the Apes, Jaws, Close Encounters, uh, a lot. There's a lot of notable science fiction films um, that came out during the seventies. Um, but the, the one, the one main science fiction film, kind of the, the, not the catalyst, but I would say for lack of better terms, the monolith science fiction film that had come out that kind of started defining the genre was 2001. So then, and that was done in the sixties. So then, you know, you have the seventies, um, things were changing. Then you had star Wars. Um, but there was a very specific science fiction film called invasion of the body snatchers with Donald Sutherland. And that film is actually pretty freaky. I've just re- watched it recently. It's really freaky. There's not tongue in cheek. That is a fucking scary movie. It is. And what a lot of it explores is body horror. Um, the idea that your body is taken over and you, whatever happens to your body, your, your body is discarded, but there's a new you and it's not the old you. And, uh, then that, you know, you, of course you have pods. So almost like alien where there's a pod and alien, there's pods in invasion of the body snatchers. Um, and these pods kind of are hosting new forms of us. Um, and of course, unlike alien where alien, the, the face hugger and the chest burger, and the chest burger, the chest burster, they are chest burger. <laughs> I like a, I like a large delicious. <laughs> That's delicious quarter pounder. Um, but the chest burster and the face hugger, they're there to destroy us. They're there to kind of rip out our insides and um, use us to fuel their, you know, much like spores do with ants, and a lot of uh, insects will implant their their eggs or whatever in other insects or other creatures, and then their their spawn essentially will burst forth that's what the alien life cycle is but the idea of body horror and and uh kind of things taking over humanity was being played around with at the time in in a really uh authentically scary way in invasion of the body snatchers was which was also a remake of the original film in which the 50s. was from the 50s yeah which yeah. Is, which is significantly earlier too and and which is also scary too the original movie is really good but yeah. I, I do think that the the 78 version is uh is just a, a, a total masterpiece it's an incredible movie and i think yeah. it's um it's it's really a great sort of template setter for how you can do truly frightening body horror based science fiction and again it also stars you know Veronica Cartwright as a as a major character in it um 
you know, Leonard Nimoy's in it. It has all of these interesting cross currents to other science fiction projects going on in the late seventies. It was just such a fertile time where the form was being played with in such interesting ways. Yeah, I, I would agree. Um, and I really, I, I, I think that a lot of the films that were coming out, science fiction films specifically, were really, I'll just use this term, gestating alien. Um, <laughs> yeah, you're all, you're all about these. these I know. I just can't. I can't. I can't get around. Oh my it. god! It's how I say a monolith. A monolith. Um, but I will say that monolith, I remember seeing that monolith for the first time in 2001 as a, a, a teenager. Mm. And just that thing, it scared me to death. I don't Two, know why. 2001 it's, is one of my absolute favorite movies ever made. Me too. That, that is a it's film amazing. that I've seen that dozens and dozens of times. And it has never gotten old. And it has never you know, failed to freak the fucking life out of me. That movie I, is just amazing. It is. And there's a lot of HAL 9000 in Ash. Um, Ash is almost the human embodiment of HAL 9000. And then you have the, you know, the messages coming from Wayland Yutani in Mother's, in the Mother Room. There's a lot of ideas that came from 2001, even some visual ideas that came from 2001 at play on display in Alien. Oh, sure. Um, even down to the, the, the miniatures technique and, and the, you know, shooting uh, at a higher frame rate to be able to capture yeah. slower motion when they go by. Mm -hmm. uh, a lot of the, just like from a technical standpoint, you know, Douglas Trumbull, obviously, there's a huge cross current there with 2001 A Space Odyssey. But, but I think something that's important to note, and this is something that I was either talking with somebody yesterday about it or reading about it. Something happened yesterday that, that let me think about this. There is an interesting transference that happens between 2001 and Alien. And I think it's that in 2001, the horror, and it, I, I mean, in a lot of ways, I think 2001 is sort of a horror film, not just because of hell, but because of something about the existential reality of being trapped at the mercy of things that are so, it's almost like it's uh, Lovecraftian, you know, and although in, in Lovecraft, of course, like the, you know, in a, in a, in a book like that, The Mountains of Madness, the, the horror is, is bigger than you, but it's the vestiges of some sort of a doomed alien civilization. In 2001, the horror that's bigger than you is just the vastness of the universe and the inconsequentialness of yourself, you know, in, in the face of it. In Alien, though, there is an actual real, um, physicalized corporeal horror aspect to it that is also so it, it takes like the the sort of existential fear that you see in 2001 and that you see in lovecraft but specifically speaking from 2001 to alien because they're easy to compare it takes that sort of con the conceptual horror of 2001 and it makes it corporeal because in it there's definitely a there's a parallel obviously between hal and between the company and between ash but the company and Ash can only get you so far. At the end of the day, you need somebody to bite you, you know, to actually kill you. And that ends up being the xenomorph, which is just the complete oily embodiment of all of the evil that is implicit in Hal and that's implicit in Ash, but is explicit in the xenomorph. And to me, taking that mm -hmm. sort of high concept science fiction and keep in incorporealizing it like that, to, it just feels uh, like I feel like that's the crossover where it becomes something that is so horrifying that um, it, it's almost unwatchable for some people. Yeah, I, I would absolutely agree. And as we continue to explore Alien and essentially how the film happened, because I, I really think that Alien is a miracle of a film. Alien is a film that should not have been made, um, but it was made. Um, not to say that like should not have been made, like no, they shouldn't have made it, but like um, it, at the time, um, just, you know, Ridley Scott was young. 
you know, Dan O'Bannon had been struggling. You know, he'd kind of gone from project to project. Um, yeah, we can wrap in five. That's fine. Uh, it's just a film that that was made from a lot of from many years of struggle from struggle for Dan O'Bannon to get that story made, to get it sold. Um, you know, we've heard the stories, you know, we, we're, our next episode, we're featuring a, a wonderful interview with his, with his widow, with his wife. Wasn't Diane. that a great interview? It, that was, it was one of my, one of my favorite things we have ever done on this show. I gotta yeah, say, I, I can't wait to, to let everyone listen to it. It's just, it was absolutely wonderful. Um, one of the best things we've ever done. Um, but to know his struggle, to know what was going through his head, um, and how much he loved this material, uh, how much he loved Giger, and how much he rooted for Ridley Scott. Um, Alien is a is a creation um, that exists because of Dan O'Bannon, and then because of Giger, and then because of Ridley Scott, and then of course 20th Century Fox and Alan Ladd Jr. taking a risk. You know, I mean, it was a big risk for them to take to say, we don't know really what kind of movie you're about to make. We don't know. Like it, the, the, you know, I would say the production was relatively smooth, but there was a lot of stuff going on. There was tension between the cast. Um, a lot of people kind of didn't know, like, what, what are you doing? What is this? Um, it seemed like this, like cocktail of like, we'll see. And, and oddly enough, you know, as we discussed later on, Alien 3 was a similar idea, except for it just went way off the right. Ra- off the rails. Yeah, Alien Three was kind of an extra, like a funhouse mirror version of what yeah. happened. Yeah, whereas Ridley Scott, really, I think, in terms of the being the director and uh, having the confidence that he has, he got that film made. He was like, "No, we're going to do it like this. This is what we need, and we're going to go for it." And he, they shot it in England, and of course, he is British. A lot of the, you know, most of the the crew was as well. They respected him, and they came together and they made this masterpiece. And not to even. I mean, we'll eventually get on to this. I mean, maybe we can have a, ha, even have a discussion about the cassette futurism and talk about the ship. They built that ship, the Nostromo, like they built all of those corridors connecting. Those cameras went in there like it was this real thing, and they filmed and they lit the, the ship like they underlit it so that they didn't have to get lighting rigs in there, and that's how they shot it. It was incredible. They don't make films like that anymore. They don't build sets like that anymore, unless maybe you're J.J. Abrams on the new Star Wars and they have the money to. Um, yeah, but, but, even then, just... but even then it comes across like more commercial. For, for some reason, like yeah. the, the sets that they built in Shepard and Studios, to me, feel like they were not commercial. And I think you're right. I think part of it's the practical lighting. Part of it's the fact that there's like no cheating going on. There's no... Um, there, obviously there's no like digital compositing but but also just like it's a physical space that they're interacting in and like sure they you know they'll film it from, film it from different angles and they'll they'll play some tricks about where ladders are leading and things like that but at the end of the day like that was a huge building that they were moving around in that was lit like a commercial ship would have been lit you know not um it wasn't supposed to look beautiful it just looked beautiful because Ron Cobb is a, an aesthetic genius but like you know it looked real yeah, uh, it, it's still, I think about the Nostromo all the time. I don't know about you. I think about that, that ship all the time. It feels like home. There's, and you know, the, the beauty of that ship and, and the storytelling and the acting and the writing is that ship felt like home and then it felt like death. It felt like a death trap. Like you don't know all of a sudden this space that we feel so at ease and comfortable in is now housing this thing that can tear you limb from limb with the, with a swat of its tail. Um, it's just, it's, it's an amazing, um, it's an amazing example of just, uh, top of the line design, but, but constructed in a way that it felt like 
It didn't feel like, oh, space somewhere. You know, it's it it kind of was riding the coattails a little bit of Star Wars where it's like, no, it's, it's going to be dirty. It's going to be a little bit, not a little bit. It was dirty. The cockpit, all of those scenes, you know, at the, you know, during at the control station of the Nostromo, it was all dirty and used like that ship had been around for years and years, <laughs> like and years. cigarettes everywhere. It's, and it's that's disgusting. not typical. Yeah. yeah. It's not typical of science fiction. Even today with sci-fi, a lot of the ships that we see, they're all brand new. They're all still shiny. Nothing looks like it's ever been touched before. Um, it's not as believable. Um, and, and, and even, even like, the, it, the prequels like the, have moved away from that. To they be have. And, and even like the JJ Abrams sets, like, you know, we're talking about the star Wars prequels, like that's, that's, or the star Wars sequels. That's another example of, um, of like things that I think are sort of aesthetically trying to ape alien in a way, because it's sort of become this, um, like default space aesthetic for a lot of movies. But I think sometimes it falls flat because it feels like they're sort of trying on the clothes of alien without actually, um, arising as the result of like a narrative choice. Like I feel like part of why the production design in Alien is so amazing is because it feels like the inevitable result of the story that they're telling. Like the like they had the story down and then because of that they built the sets to look a very specific way that ended up being, you know, iconic, but um they weren't trying to make it iconic. They were just trying to to tell the story as 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 honestly as they could given the crew that they had and the and the story that they were trying to tell. And I think a lot of movies they try to go for this like kind of grimy space aesthetic and it looks like it's the same thing as like when you buy jeans from Urban Outfitters and they've been like in their $130 but they've been like, you know, beaten to shit by people. <laughs> it's the same idea. It's like you're you're trying on this idea of being used and being authentic, but without being used and without being authentic, and with having all the, all of these you know digital augmentations going on everywhere, and all, too too many lights flashing and and too many disparate things going on in the background. An alien, it's just like a a pile of beautiful junk that just is is the way that it had to be, you know. Yeah, and I think we we haven't even really touched on this, and obviously, you know, we're going to have a, a lot more episodes in the series, so we'll, we will get to it. But the cast is just fucking amazing and so strange, you know. I think, and I think again, people have been trying to minimize Ridley Scott's involvement in a lot of ways. I think because of of some of the divisive reception with the with the newer films that we've been getting. But I think it's important to remember, like, he is the reason why you know Harry Dean Stanton did the movie. Like, like he Harry Dean Stanton hated the genre; he had no interest in it. And Ridley saw something in him that he thought would work, and he convinced him to take the part. And I, I think, in in a way, part of why Brett is such an enduring character is the same reason why a character in Blade Runner like J.F. Sebastian is so enduring. They're both played by character actors who you would never in a million years think to cast in those parts. They're completely atypical for these for these particular actors and for like the the sort of role. And yet they're so indelible immediately because they just really saw something in them about the story that he was trying to tell. And he would take not take no for an answer, you know, let alone Sigourney Weaver, who obviously we've talked about at great length in this podcast and who we will forever talk about because she's a hero of ours. I mean, she was the last person to um, officially be cast like she was screen testing while they were already in production, you know, on the on the set. Like she was uh, essentially unknown outside of stage acting. She was a Yale grad and she was, uh, you know, related to this, you know, CBS uh, president. But 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 she but she was basically an unknown entity. And she came in there reading for a part with their boots on and she got it. And she ended up not only knocking it out of the ballpark, but um, but turning in, you know, one of the great roles in the history of film that is so uh is so linked to her now that that it's almost impossible to think of alien without thinking of Sigourney Weaver and she did that yep. as a young 
aspiring actress. You know, it's amazing. Yeah. Well, but even still, she was 29 when she got Alien. She was not this, you know, this spring chick. I mean, obviously she wasn't old at all. She was in her last year of her 20s, but it she didn't start she didn't take her stride in films until Alien that launched her into sort of the stratosphere. Um yeah, I mean that the 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 characters, the actors in Alien, I mean that will be fodder for uh, probably an entire episode or a roundtable or whatever we decide is right for that. But, oh, I uh, hope so. There's it, so much to break down in there. There is. But really, really, what I think about and what I really appreciate is what Ridley Scott was going for. Realism. We need to make this real. We need to make this not like we need these people to feel like they're your brothers and sisters who who go to work at the, the, the steel mill factory or or the car factory or whatever they do um, to kind of pay for their lives. They, you know, they don't really like their jobs. They're away from their families. They're truck drivers, you know, in truckers in space, essentially. Um, and really that's what impresses upon me the most about the characters is, and, and then the, the spaces that they inhabit is it's not so much about you, a used, um, it's not so much about a used future or a cassette future as it is. These are poor people in space. What is it? It's not going to look like, you know, it's got to be believable. Um, and there hasn't been anything like it since. There has not been an alien film like it since. The only alien film that I could relate to it since is probably Alien 3 in terms of you have these prisoners in this dirty, grimy um, prison on this planet that no one gives a shit about. And it's just kind of fallen into disrepair. Um, and, and David Fincher really was able to conjure this really authentic space. Um, but aside from that film... Um, it hasn't been done yet. And I just think it, uh, I mean, again, hats off to everyone who put just every piece of that film together. Um, it, it's, it's unbelievable. And we are going to be exploring it more. Um, and I know that Patrick, you and I could probably continue to talk about alien. Obviously we will in other episodes, but we felt like we just needed an intro into this incredible film that is responsible for why we're here at this moment. It is a it is a huge deal. I have I have an error correction to make. I think I said that Sigourney Weaver's dad was a CBS president. It's actually it's NBC. So you know, just in case anybody was, was freaking out about that, but you're right. Yeah, th- this is this is such a deeply important thing for us as people, as a fandom, and as a culture of film going movie buffs. And I think that this is uh, it's it's my favorite movie ever made. It's uh, it's something that I think about all the time. It defines a big part of my life and I am so excited that I get to sit here and talk about it with one of my best friends in the world on these on on dozens of these fucking episodes and I can't wait to see where it goes and there's so much to come and I'm very excited about it yeah I'm really excited too I would not want to be doing this with anyone else except for maybe Dan Ferlino but uh, yeah, it's I, I can't wait for the episodes that w- that that are coming for to release the interview with Diana Bannon to everyone. Thank you, everyone, for listening. We're really, really excited in this really seminal year for Alien. Um, there's just there's a lot to be excited about. There's a lot that's uh, going to be release releasing on Alien Day. There's more expanded universe things to come during uh, during this year, this banner year, and post-merger and probably exciting announcements coming from Fox and, or I'm sorry from well Fox slash Disney um, in terms of new films and a new future so uh, strap in yeah see you guys for more on Perfect Organism the Alien Saga podcast please visit perfectorganism.com 
Perfect Organism is available for listen or download through Podbean, iTunes, Google Play, TuneIn, and Spotify. If you'd like to support the show, please visit perfectorganism.com forward slash support. Thank you.